couple things before we begin. First, shout out to Sarah from Reddit for the topic idea of resurrectionists. It was a really fun topic to research. And you can always send topic ideas to us on social media. We can't get to all of them uh, with our own episode, but we do try to put them in our backlog for research, and we always follow up on each idea you give us, so thank you again. Also, while we're doing shoutouts, if you're not part of the community already, you should really check out the subreddit, The Gritty Past, at reddit.com. It's a sub dedicated to publishing historical stories, quotes, and photographs on the tragic, disturbing, moving, and violent parts of history. It's a fact-checked in long form, it's not like sharing Facebook posts or anything. We publish there five times a week, along with many other people, and if you like how we structure this show around placing crime in a sociological context, you'll really like that sub. I know a lot of you guys are already on there, and you guys are awesome. So go subscribe to them, and check them out. Finally, special announcement. We are a couple months away from the one-year anniversary of this podcast, and we wanted to do something special for the occasion. Plus, honestly, we really need a break from reading and researching. So, we're taking listener questions for a grab bag episode that will drop November 4th. Send us your questions on social media about anything. Historical questions, podcast-related questions, questions about our cats. Please ask questions about our cats. You guys have been amazing. And we do this because of you. Without you, we wouldn't be here. And this has been one of the best projects I've ever done in my life. So, thank you for everything you do. And we're going to keep going as long as people are listening. All right, to the show. Today's episode is taken from the book The Diary of a Resurrectionist, 1811-1812, by James Bailey. What would you do for a million dollars? I'm sure you've heard this question asked. It's a favorite of journaling exercises. There's that movie, Indecent Proposal, where Robert Redford offers Demi Moore a million dollars to sleep with him. I think your reaction to that film tells you how far you'd be willing to go. I always found the exercise a little hackneyed, because typically it's like, do this one immoral act for one million dollars. And it's easy for us to imagine that we're willing to do one immoral action if we could make a million dollars. We can justify it, tell ourselves, it's just the one time, how much harm will it cause compared to how much I'll gain? It's pretty unrealistic and certainly easier to imagine. I think it's harder if we say, what work would you be willing to do for a six-figure salary? Because that might sound a little more benign of a question, but it's also a more realistic one, isn't it? We ask ourselves that whenever we apply for a job or think about college, what the base minimum job I'll do to make a fairly comfortable living. How about this? What's the minimum job you would do that's morally gray? Something that to society is, hmm, it's not illegal, but it's certainly not, well, it's looked down upon, because that's actually a little bit more fun. Like, case in point, um... I had the unique opportunity of working as a door-to-door salesman for a summer in college, and it was the worst job I ever did, bar none. Not because of the pay. I actually could have made decent money doing it if I didn't feel so awful about it. It's because I felt like I was 
fleecing customers, pushing them to buy stuff they really didn't need to buy, guilting them from a script. It wasn't illegal, but it certainly felt immoral, at least to me. I quit that job pretty quickly, but I thought to myself, what's my limit? What could I do that would exist in that morally gray area in my life? I'll admit, it's easier for me to think of killing a man for a million dollars than making a comfortable living day in, day out, going door-to-door -door sales. Not that I would make six figures from that, mind you. I asked this question because I stumbled across a diary recently that was an interesting find. It's the diary of a resurrection gang, a group of men dedicated to exhuming corpses from graveyards and selling them to medical schools. We talked a little bit about this in our episode, Entertainment of Murder, but in that context, it was about two murderers, Burke and Hare, who were actually killing people to sell. But universally, resurrectionists didn't do that, because they operated in a morally gray area, a bit like that door-to-door -door salesman trying to get customers to sign a contract, you know, some shady sales tactics. Is it illegal? No but it certainly isn't the most morally scrupulous job either. These were normal men doing menial labor, an occupation that made a decent, comfortable wage for little work, but it operated in a legally gray area, and they themselves were willing to cross the boundaries of the law if it made them a little more money. Would you be willing to dig up the dead for a comfortable living? I don't know. You might be surprised how simple the operation was, how much money you could get out of it, and how far you'd be willing to go for easy money. I'm Trevor Rhodes, and this is High Crimes in History. What exactly is a resurrectionist? Pamphlets and broadsides printed often called them Burkers, after the Burke and Hare murders. And if you haven't listened to our Entertainment of Murder episode, you could probably listen to just the 10 minutes we talk about Burke and Hare there. Long story short, two resurrectionists begin killing people and selling their bodies. Public sensationalized their account for entertainment. Now, the public thought of resurrectionists as this class of people stealing children, suffocating them, selling them up to be carved in medical universities. Here's a stereotypical account of a supposed burker from a broadside account reprinted in the introduction of the diary. Quote, It appears that, on Monday night, a man named John Wilson was apprehended at Edinburgh on the charge of burking a number of persons by introducing arsenic into snuff kept by him. He had long excited the suspicion of the police of that place, but so deep laid were his diabolical schemes that he eluded their vigilance for a considerable time, until Monday last, when, on the moors, on that day, practicing his dreadful trade, it appears that the victim of Wilson's villainy was a poor man traveling over the moor, who he accosted, and offered a pinch of snuff. He took it, and it had the desired effect." End quote. So in this case, the newspapers accused John Wilson of giving laborers and travelers a bit of snuff laced with arsenic. Supposedly, he was found with three bodies at his residence when he was caught by the police. He's described in the account as, quote, a desperate character and a ferocious countenance. 
He is supposed to have been two or three years in this abominable practice, and to have realized a considerable sum in the course of that time. His career is now stopped, and that justice and doom which overtook a Burke and a Hare are his last and only portion. End quote. At the end of the account, there's even this cute little poem warning against villains like Wilson. The second half of the poem reads, quote, For if strangers invite you to take off their dust, decline their kind offers, refuse them you must, and would you be safe and keep from all evil, shun them as passage you shun the devil. By these means you'll live, avoiding all strife, shunning snuff-takers all the days of your life. End quote. It's a fun little poem to read even today, but it shouldn't come as a surprise that there's no record of a John Wilson, nor of any records of a man murdering people with snuff to sell their bodies. Like a lot of resurrection accounts, it's flat-out lies for entertainment. But after the Burke and Hare murders, the public at large saw these resurrectionists as the equivalency of murderers, and had no problem bleeding the two together. The reality is that the job of a resurrectionist was much more mundane. It came about for a simple reason. Medical universities needed bodies for dissection. Now, obviously, you can't be a very good doctor without a little practice. And in the days before videos and photography, all one could rely on was either textbooks or the real deal, actual physical bodies to practice on. Students needed to be able to practice their anatomical knowledge on bodies, especially since in order to fully graduate, they needed to have attended at least two courses on dissection. But there were very few bodies to go around. There were laws in place to help alleviate the shortage, but they just simply weren't enough. In 1540, Henry VIII passed an act that allowed the company of barbers and surgeons to have the bodies of executed criminals, but they were only given access to four bodies a year. That expanded much later to include all executed criminals, but at a rate of a little over 50 a year, that couldn't meet the demands of medical schools. Furthermore, executions were often accompanied by riots, and in the middle of a scuffle, bodies could be disappeared into a crowd, quote, rescued from a grisly fate. As well, fresh bodies were housed in warehouses or houses in between the time when it would be handed over to the university, and a family could demand the body be released to them, whether they were a murderer or not, and it often was. And then to make matters even worse, there was no need for a license to open a medical school in London. Anyone could do so. By the early 19th century, medical schools were clamoring for upwards of 500 bodies in London alone, but only several dozen would be available at a given time. The market was in high demand and someone needed to fill that supply. Now, it should be said that many proposals were floated in the public. It wasn't like it was an unknown problem. One newspaper claimed that prostitutes should be available for dissection after death as, quote, prostitutes had, by their bodies during life, been engaged in corrupting mankind. It was only right that after death those bodies should be handed over to be dissected for the public good, end quote. Other, more reasonable proposals argued all unknown persons who died should be dissected, which would be about 1,100 people a year in just London. That'd meet the demand very quickly. Others argued that suicides, or those who had died by dueling, drunkenness, and other illegal acts, should be dissected. There's even a variation of the more modern solution of volunteering one's body for science, 
One man put forward a proposal to buy bodies and for people to voluntarily sell their body ahead of their death to science. Of course, what's to say a person doesn't just pocket the money and move to another part of the country? So that proposal was shot down. And it's not like people didn't want to donate their bodies to different causes, such as science or schools or universities. There simply were no laws that allowed them to. In 1831, one man, a Mr. Boys, wanted to be made into essential salts for use by his female friends. Let that sink in for a little bit. Angry that he could not be dissected and used as such, he wrote a letter stating, quote, Are you now disposed, without burking, to accomplish my wish, when my breath or spirit shall have ceased to animate my carcass, to perform the operation of vitrifying my bones, of sublimating the rest, thereby cheating the devil of his due, according to the ideas of some devotees among Christians, and that I may not offend the delicate olfactory nerves of my female friends with a massive putridity, if it be possible, let me rather fill a few little bottles of essential salts therefrom, and revive their drooping spirits. It may be irksome to you to superintend the business, but perhaps you have knowledge of some rising genius or geniuses who may be glad of a subject without paying for it. Let them slash and cut and divide as best please them. End quote. That was one of those letters that was just so strange. I felt the need to include it, but I mean, he's got a point. It's his body to do with what he will. When he's dead, he's dead. So put it to whatever use he wills it. But legally, that wasn't an option. So what to do about this body shortage? Well, teachers were afraid of other rival schools offering more opportunities for dissection classes, which meant that they needed more bodies to dissect than their competition. They turned to offering large sums of money to those who would be willing to bring them bodies no questions asked. These were the Resurrectionists. At first, only a few men engaged in the resurrection trade, and it remained quiet and under the table. But of course, easy money draws men from everywhere, hoping to strike it rich themselves. In London in 1828, the police suspected only 10 men were fully employed in the trade, but added that around 200 participated in the trade as a side hustle. Now, these resurrectionists didn't operate independently. They instead banded together in gangs of around a half dozen to a dozen, the better to work faster and offer protection for one another. And that's where I think this story of resurrectionists gets interesting, because gangs, they were. They engaged in turf wars, defended their territory, shook down medical schools. They fought each other, tussling in churchyards and brawling in cemeteries. In fact, it was the violent crime that caused the public to pay more attention to resurrectionists rather than the Burke or Hare's murder spree. And they were vicious in keeping their territory, or encroaching on a rival gang's territory. Gangs would set up trades with individual universities who were supposed to buy only through them, or at least that's what the gangs wanted them to do. If they didn't, they might find themselves in hot water with a bunch of lowlifes ready to do anything to protect their trade. Sometimes a group of resurrectionists would break into a dissecting room of a university and cut up the body sold by a rival gang, sort of as a way of telling the teacher, you buy solely from us. Teacher comes in, and they would find the body in pieces ripped apart. 
Sometimes, the gangs would alert the police that a stolen body sold by a rival was in the dissecting room to thwart off any attempt to buy from rival gangs. Because if the police would be tipped off, they would go to the university, find the body, take it back from the teachers, and then the teacher was out both some pounds and a body. There's one story that of a teacher who crossed a gang by buying from another source. The gang dropped two rotting bodies that were falling apart, literally stinking skin and bones, at two ends of the street where the school was located. Local women came upon it and were so offended that a mob formed to punish the teacher for what they supposed was mistreatment of the dead, and the police were called in to break up the riot. Now, teachers of various universities tried to band together to form like an anatomical club to regulate prices, but it wasn't faithfully kept, and even more universities continued to crop up. So, now that we understand what kind of man a resurrectionist was, how did they get their bodies? When you think of resurrection men, you probably think of body snatchers sneaking into a graveyard at night to dig up a grave and whisk away the body. And you'd be partially correct, but the procedure typically required less subterfuge. When they arrived at a cemetery, there was always a custodian watching over the graves to stop grave robbers. Universally, gangs admitted they bribed custodians of a burial ground with money or alcohol. Custodians were willing individuals, and of course, they were outnumbered by the gang, so who were they to argue? After the gang arrived, at the grave of a recently deceased, they would group together and dig. If they were stealing from multiple graves next to each other, they would dig only one hole around the two coffins. If it was only one body, the question of how they dug is debated. Multiple accounts from resurrectionists state that a small hole or tunnel was made into the head of the coffin. There they broke it open, looped a rope around its neck or under its armpits, and pulled it out. Thomas Wackley, founder of the Lancet Medical Journal, described it thusly from hearing about it from another resurrectionist. Quote, In the case of a neat or not-quite-new grave, the ingenuity of the resurrectionist came into play. Several feet, 15 or 20, away from the head or foot of the grave, he would remove a square of turf, about 18 or 20 inches in diameter. This he would carefully put by and then commence to mine. Most pauper graves were of the same depth, and if the sepulchre was that of a person of importance, the depth of the grave could be pretty well estimated by the nature of the soil thrown up. Taking a five-foot grave, the coffin lid would be about four feet from the surface. A rough slanting tunnel, some five yards long, would therefore have to be constructed, so as to impinge exactly on the coffin head. This being at last struck, no very simple task, the coffin was lugged up by hooks to the surface, or preferably, the end of the coffin was wrenched off with hooks while still in the shelter of the tunnel, and the scalp or feet of the corpse secured through the open end, the body pulled out, leaving the coffin almost intact and unmoved. The body once obtained, the narrow shaft was easily filled up and the sod of turf accurately replaced. The friends of the deceased, seeing that the earth over his grave was not disturbed, would flatter themselves that the body had escaped the resurrectionist, but they seldom noticed the neatly placed square of turf some feet away. End quote. Now that seems like a real tactic to extract a body. I mean, I've never tried to dig up a grave, so like people telling me just about anything, I'd probably believe it. However, that seems to be a pretty robust method to get away with body snatching. 
I mean, they're digging into fresh graves. Can't they just cover it back up and it still look like, you know, a fresh grave? It seems needlessly complicated. And other resurrection men said the same. One man, Bransby Cooper, stated that he, quote, asked one of the principal resurrection men as to the feasibility of this method, and the man showed him several objections to it and stated that it would never do. End quote. So more likely, this was what professional resurrectionists would tell amateurs to do, thereby increasing their work. It reminds me a little bit of like a group of soldiers telling the rookie to go find some chemlight batteries, something that doesn't exist, and send them on this wild goose chase for a long time. Either way, exhuming a body and covering back up would only take about 15 minutes for a shallow grave with loose earth, or up to an hour and a half in a deep grave with noisy gravel, which took longer because they needed to minimize the noise. Now, grave robbing wasn't always easy going. Families didn't take kindly to their deceased loved ones being sold against their will, so they, in graveyards, had numerous methods to stop resurrection gangs. Since cemetery custodians could not be trusted, graves of the recently deceased were often guarded by friends who were armed and ready for the resurrection men. In most of these cases, the resurrection men simply went to another graveyard. Any commotion could raise the police or a mob, and it wasn't worth a scuffle. There were times, however, that it did end in a scuffle. One case from an Irish newspaper in 1830 recorded an account of violence when a resurrection gang attacked a group of these friends guarding a grave. Quote, About ten minutes after two o'clock, three or four of the gang were observed standing on the walls of the churchyard, while several others were endeavoring to get on it also. The party in the churchyard warned them off and were replied to by discharge from firearms. This brought on a general engagement. The sack em up gentlemen fired from behind the churchyard wall, by which they were defended, while their opponents on the watch, the deceased friends, fired from behind the tombstones. Upwards of 58 to 60 shots were fired. One of the assailants was shot. He was seen to fall. His body was carried off by his companions. Some of them supposed to have been severely wounded, as a great quantity of blood was observed outside the churchyard wall, notwithstanding the ground was covered in snow. During the firing, which continued for upwards of a quarter of an hour, the church bell was rung by one of the watchmen, which, with the discharge from the firearms, collected several of the townspeople and the police to the spot. Several of the former, notwithstanding the severity of the weather, in a nearly state of nakedness, but the assailants were by this time defeated and effected their retreat. Several of the headstones bear evident marks of the conflict, being struck with the balls. End quote. These actions of violence were common enough that they aroused the public to the problem of resurrectionists in general, even before Burke and Hare. More commonly, violent altercations in a cemetery were gang-on-gang -gang violence, in which one resurrection gang would happen upon and rout the other, then share information about them to the police to get them arrested. In addition to a watch, other defenses were erected to deter resurrection men as well. Sometimes they were mundane, like trinkets left on the grave. If they were disturbed, loved ones knew that their deceased had been stolen and could check nearby universities. Mort safes were placed over fresh graves. You can take a look at them online. They look like crab cages made of raw iron that were put over the grave. 
Walls were all around the graveyard, made of loose stones that rendered climbing impossible. Rich men bought coffins to protect themselves, or built stone mausoleums around their graves until putrefaction set in, at which point they could be dismantled. Other defenses were deadly. Spring guns were placed with tripwires aiming at the grave so that any resurrectionist who tripped one would be shot. There's even one account of a man who buried his child with the equivalency of a landmine that would explode if it was disturbed. As such, sometimes it was easier for a resurrectionist to just find a body somewhere else than a graveyard. Many bodies were not exhumed. Instead, they were stolen, sometimes in their coffin, before burial at the house of their loved ones, or while awaiting the coroner's inquest. If this was the case, they could make double off of a body, because they could sell it, turn around, inform the police, wait for the police to pick it up, then pretend to be relatives collecting the body. Then they could sell it to another teacher. In one case, a teacher bought a body in a sack and had it taken to the dissecting room to discover that it was still alive. It was a man who was part of a gang sneaking in to steal the bodies already stored in that room. There was one dirty tactic that struck me as particularly dreadful. Bailey writes, quote, Subjects, too, were obtained from cheap undertakers who kept the bodies of the poor until the time for burial. The coffin was weighted as to conceal the fraud, and the mockery of reading the burial service over it was gone through in the presence of the unsuspecting relatives. End quote. And this is the part where, depending on who you are, it might tug your heartstrings. These bodies were loved ones, and these people were in mourning. I'm one of those people who doesn't really care much what happens to my body when I die. I'm dead, do what you want with it. But even so, I'm not really sure how I'd feel if someone took me literally at my word and decided to turn me into like a mannequin, or stuffed me and put me in a trophy room, or something really awful like necrophilia. There's something in our human nature that sees bodies as inherently sacred, and in the 19th century London, cutting one up, even for science, crossed that line. So, whatever your line is, imagine that being crossed with the body of your wife, or your husband, or a son or a daughter. It's a little easier to sympathize, isn't it? Now, these stolen bodies would be preserved with salt, or even pickled for several days, until sale. One confirmed account in a broadside was that of 33 bodies that were found in casks to be shipped from Liverpool to Edinburgh. They were preserved in containers labeled bitter salts. The bodies they obtained would be in two sizes, adult and small, with small being those under three feet. Small were sold per inch and could be as small as fetuses. How many bodies they obtained a night depended heavily per man and per gang, one man, named only A.B., boasted of taking 23 bodies in four nights. The diary writer claims that he took 332 adults and 47 smalls over the course of one year. The average price of an adult body was four pounds and four shillings. The diarist notes that they made 1,328 guineas off of all of the adults they sold in 1810 and 1811 a guinea being one pound, one shilling. That'd be about 232 guineas per man in the gang. Trying to figure out how much any currency could go for today is difficult. I mean, if you try to do like a straight exchange 
of 232 guineas from 1811 into 2019 U.S. dollars, that would be in the ballpark of $24,000. But of course, that doesn't explain how much you could buy with that money. A better way to put it would be that one guinea would be able to buy in the ballpark of 20 pounds of coffee, 200 pounds of sugar, half of a cow, or 300 gallons worth of potatoes. Depending on where they were and in what bulk they were buying, they could afford an acre easily for a guinea if they bought it in sufficient quantities. When you compare it to other jobs, the contrast stands out. A laborer in 1825 would be lucky if they made 20 pounds. A bailiff might make 40. And we're not even counting the income that could be made by a resurrectionist from small corpses or teeth, which weren't originally added in, and might add an additional 20% to 50% on top of that. Then there's the retaining fee that they'd contract with a school, as well as the finishing fee to close out a year. In other words, they made bank for their education. Close to what we might consider six figures today. Filthy rich? No. But comfortable? With few worries in their life? Yes. Not that they'd spend it wisely. Bailey reports that most of the men spent it on drink, gambling, and women. But a few didn't and actually invested it. One man died and left to his family 6,000 pounds, which if you remember, 20 pounds for a laborer a year, that is a really nice sum of money to leave to your family. So let's circle back around to the question we asked in the beginning. What would you do for a six-figure salary a year? Would you dig up corpses? Well, it's illegal, you say. I'm not going to break the law for that sort of money. So here's the rub. What if it's not? Because here's the thing. While the resurrection men often employed illegal tactics to obtain bodies, the actual violation of a gravesite and sale of a body wasn't illegal. The actual exhumation of a body was perfectly legal. It was only friends, families, and the general public that protested against the violation of sacred ground. The reason was stupidly simple. Dead bodies, under British law, couldn't be owned. They weren't property. So digging one up and selling them couldn't be stealing. Now their clothes or the coffin or anything they had on the body, that would be stealing. But the body itself could not be possessed, at least in legal speak, so it could easily be transported naked and no law was broken. Even if they are caught in the act by police, the Committee on Anatomy would suppress the names of the men and only refer to them by letters of the alphabet, so even if they did something illegal, they still often got off scot-free. If someone was indicted, it was almost always a misdemeanor for something else related to the charges, something that might go to prison for like maximum six months. The few indictments that did come through were upheld by superior courts, so resurrectionists were wary, especially part-timers who weren't as committed to the act. But the problem was, quote, Those who did run this risk very naturally expected a price proportionate to the danger, and so the cost of subjects was still more increased. End quote. So maybe, you think, the teachers would be indicted for holding bodies. Sometimes they were. Two physicians were found guilty in 1828 for possession of a body with knowledge of illegal disinternment, but they were only fined 20 pounds and 5 pounds, respectively. Which is strange, because violating a grave or stealing the body was not illegal, and neither was possessing the body, 
but knowledge of the source of the body while possessing it, if it was illegal, could be. Obviously, some sort of law had to be passed, but the public still turned their nose at dissection in general. Thus, physicians decided to try a simple tactic. They decided to show the advantages of anatomy by giving open demonstrations to the public. Sir Philip Crampton, one physician in Ireland, lectured openly to poor people, who became so interested that they brought him bodies, legally obtained ones, for dissection. In 1829, a surgeon in London gave a demonstration to overseers and church wardens. An article printed afterwards stated, quote, By this means, he so fully absorbed the self-interest of his audience as to extinguish the preconceived notions of horror and disgust attached to the idea of a spectacle of this description. The enlightened governors of the parish assented to the post-mortem examination of the body of every unclaimed pauper, an inquiry into whose case might appear conductive to the interests of medical science. End quote. By 1828, the House of Commons and Parliament was investigating a way to pass legislation opening a door from which medical schools could obtain bodies legally. In March 1829, such a bill was proposed, stating that all unclaimed bodies of people who died in workhouses or hospitals were to be given over for purposes of dissection, as well as any person who voluntarily bequeathed their body to a medical school for dissection after death. Furthermore, the bill found, quote, that persons found guilty of disinterring any human body from any churchyard, burial ground, or vault, or assisting at any such disinterment, should be imprisoned for a term not exceeding six months for the first offense, and two years for the second offense. End quote. While the bill did not pass in its original form, a subsequent bill passed in 1832, known as the Anatomy Act, after two resurrection men, John Bishop and Thomas Williams, were found to have murdered a 14-year-old boy by drugging him with opium and suffocating him in a well to sell his body. The outcry in Parliament was enough to pass the Anatomy Act, which abolished the practice of dissecting the bodies of murderers and allowed public individuals to volunteer their bodies to science. It did not criminalize resurrection men, but the volume of legal bodies now in the market dropped demand so tremendously that soon after the passage of the Act, the resurrection men were no more. Soon the same model was spread throughout Europe, allowing individuals to volunteer their bodies for science post-mortem. In the United States today, you can donate your body to science, although the process is lengthy and requires lab tests and fees. Today, grave robbery and corpse theft are crimes in the United States. And who are the groups of people who in the past hundred years have been convicted of those offenses the most? Archaeologists and historians disturbing the grave sites of Native Americans. High Crimes in History is produced, written, and edited by Trevor and Katie Rhodes. Music by Nick Wright. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have recommendations for show topics or comments about the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or find us at our website at highcrimesinhistory.com.